This is a reading from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 3 through 11 and 15. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. From the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 35 through 38 and 42 through 50. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. We have a very exciting day, um, not just because we get to worship the Lord, which is exciting every Sunday, but we also get to dedicate baby Willow Carpenter to the Lord today, which is such a cool thing. Um, but it is, it is good to see you all this morning. We are continuing a series um, that we've been looking at called The Sacred Journey. And in this series, we've been looking at these different movements in the Christian life different elements of the Christian life. Um, we looked first at, in our first week, at encounter with God. What does it mean and what happens to us when we encounter God? All of us may have a story of when we encountered the faith or encountered God for the first time, but we actually as Christians live in life where we have encounters with God regularly. So we talked about how that forms us and how that shapes us. We looked at Isaiah's encounter in the throne room with God and that pattern that followed. We then also saw the disciples when they first encountered Jesus in the fishing boat and what happened there. And we saw a very similar pattern where both are in called into the presence of God. Both are aware of their sin and they confess their sin. Both are healed by the word of God and communion with God and both were sent. And we talked about how that's our pattern of worship every Sunday, actually. We do those things and it forms us and shapes us in the presence of God. So that was the first week. And then last week, we looked at how the Christian life is revolutionary. It's different from any other story in our world. And it requires trust, a deeply rooted trust, a trust that's not in ourselves or in mortal flesh, but a trust that is in God, that we are called to something radically different. And it requires trust in who God is, trust in the Lord, hope in the resurrection and the story of the resurrection, and a commitment to this kingdom of love. Today, we continue in our gospel text with what is often called the Sermon on the Plain. So today's just a plain sermon today. Sorry, that was a bad dad pastor joke. But uh, we, last week, we looked at all the, <laughs> the dads are going, good job. Um, the, uh, last week, we looked at the blessed R's and the woe to's, right? That's part of this sermon. But here, Jesus continues to paint the picture of the new world that is unfolding, he speaks of this new world that is coming in him. And this call is revolutionary. So the text that we read, it should strike us as really hard. <laughs> Jesus says to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who cur curse us. It says to pray for those who abuse us. That is so hard. And one of the bad reputations that this passage gets, and one of the things I hear all the time, is people think that we are describing a situation where we are a doormat for Jesus, <laughs> where we just let people walk all over us, 
right? Where we go, yeah, we're just supposed to kind of love people and say nice things to people. And we think that that means that we don't call out injustice when it happens, that we don't ever stand up for ourselves, anything like that. We've all met people who are doormats, haven't we? People who just let people walk all over them and just say, sure, whatever you want. They don't have a spine. Some marriages are that way, unfortunately where one partner is dominant and the other one over time just has never spoken up about their feelings and just let them walk all over them. We need to make it clear that that's not what we're advocating here. Notice that is not at all what Jesus is describing. If We really read it. Jesus was anything but spineless. Nothing here is about rolling over. What Jesus is doing here is he calls us to an intentional choice to respond in love. Not out of weakness, not out of codependency, but an intentional choice in strength to respond in love. So when it says, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well, this isn't a kind of masochism. It's not a desire for punishment. In in this culture, what would often happen is Roman centurions would, if they had a prisoner or they had a slave, they would backhand slap them. It was a way of dehumanizing them of showing them that I'm not even dueling with you. I'm not even fighting with you. You are not even worth that. And they'd slap on one cheek with the back of the hand. What this is saying when it says, turn the other cheek also, is it says, stand up and recognize you have to treat me as a human being. You can beat me and you choose to abuse me, but you don't do so as if I'm not a human. You don't do so to dehumanize me. And it's turning the other cheek and saying, stand up to me as a human being. Why not hit back? Why not retaliate? Well, the belief is that it keeps the violence going. We live in a world that's already violent. We live in a world that because of the results of sin, it is already naturally violent. And to stop the cycle of violence is to say, I believe in a different world than this one. I believe in a different reality than just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to stop this violence here. We hear similar stories from the nonviolent resistance of the civil rights movement in the 60s, when people maintained their dignity, requiring the oppressors to acknowledge, yes, we are actually abusing and rejecting real image-bearing humans. Found some pictures this week from some of the sit-ins in the civil rights movement, that actually, these are all from Nashville. These were sit-ins that happened in Nashville. Um, And if you look at these nonviolent, many times they would sit at a lunch counter and just be violently pulled away, just for sitting there, just for being a human being in a place that they were told not to be in. This is so significant because in our nonviolence, we actually reveal the sin of the other person. When we stand up and say, I refuse to fight back, I refuse to be violent, what we're actually saying is we're saying, you don't get to pretend that I'm not human. You don't get to pretend that I'm a dog or something and you just think you can backslap me. You have to treat me like a human being and come to grips with the fact that you are striking someone who was made in the image of God. That's what that does. That's what that reveals. When it says, anyone who takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt, it's talking about this radical generosity, even to our oppressors, that all of us fail to to get to, all of us miss the mark on this, 
but something that's radical and beyond what we can understand. What is radical generosity? One of the best images that I've seen of this is uh, in uh, Les Miserables. And it's told in the novel and the musical and all the different movies and everything. But there's one particular, the older movie, not the most recent one that's a musical, but the older version. And, and we see in this picture, Jean Valjean has been invited to stay with the bishop. But he chooses instead, the bishop offers his hospitality. And instead, Jean Valjean chooses to steal from him. And he goes and he steals all the silverware, this expensive silverware, and then the bishop kind of confronts him in the middle of the night and he strikes him, right? Knocks him out. And then the next morning, the, uh, um, Jean Valjean's been captured. So he's escaped and the soldiers have captured him, brings him back to the bishop. The soldiers come in and they say, we found this criminal and he has all of your stuff. And he says that you gave it to him. Of course, the lady, you'll notice the lady that's on there is so upset that all the silverware is gone and you know, she's really bothered by all this. And he says, he says that you gave this to him. And the bishop goes up and said, of course I gave it to him. And he says, I'm really mad at you, Jean Valjean. And you think that he's gonna be really mad about him stealing. He says, I'm really mad because you forgot the candlesticks. <laughs> and he gives him the candlesticks. In that moment, he says, um, says with this, I have... I have purchased you, purchased you for God and sent you for God. And he, he basically commissions him to live a life that's different, a life that's healing and a life that's whole. And I love this picture so much better with their accents and with their acting. <laughs> but I love this picture and this, um, uh, this joy of radical generosity to those who don't deserve it. Um, this kind of radical generosity also reveals and convicts of sin. Jean Valjean in that moment recognizes he's done something wrong. He's convicted of sin. It's not letting him off with a pass. No, he's fully aware and fully revealed of his sin and yet he's empowered to live differently. This is the kind of radical generosity that Jesus is talking about. And Luke continues by saying, your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do this, not just because it's the good thing to do, but this is the heart of God. This is how to be God's people in the world. And if you have any doubt about this, read the whole Old, Te Old Testament. <laughs> God's people continue to fail over and over again, and God continues in his radical generosity to pursue them over and over again. When they give in to what's evil and broken and dark, God loves them. In fact, we see a foretaste of this in the Joseph story that we read this morning. When you read the Old Testament, you see fingerprints of Jesus all over the Old Testament in these stories. The Old Testament stories are like a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, none of them are a perfect foreshadowing. All of the Old Testament characters are flawed and broken, and sometimes they're an example of what Jesus is not. <laughs> but we see these rumors and we see these signs of who Christ is in these stories. And in our Joseph text, we see the foreshadowing of the radical nature of God's new world. Joseph was not perfect. Some of us have heard the um, Sunday school version, but part of the story we don't often tell is the dark side of the fact that, so Joseph was his father's favorite son. And in the Old Testament, we see anytime there's a favorite child, it doesn't seem to go very well, <laughs> okay? There always seems to lead to brokenness. Um, and Joseph taunted his brothers with it. 
In fact, the language in Hebrew of Joseph telling his brothers about the dreams that he's had about them is obscene language. It's taunting them. I'm the better one. I am so much better than you. And he taunts and he brags to his brothers. So we can't use the Joseph story to just make a simple lesson about the evils of bullying and how mean his brothers were to him. Joseph was harsh and he was egotistical with his brothers. And yet his brothers responded in an obviously extreme act of rejection. If you know the story, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Joseph eventually finds himself in the court of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And he ascends to the rank of executive of the entire country. Joseph then sees his mission serving in the court of the king of Egypt as the preservation of the people of God. He is preserving the people of God. And notice that each of Joseph's brothers are the name of a tribe of Israel. That's because that's the tribe that came out of that brother, okay? So you see all these different um, uh, brothers and they all eventually have a tribe that comes from them. And a figure we don't talk enough about from this story is a guy named Judah. So if you heard the Sunday school version, it focused a lot on Joseph. Or some versions, you just know about his technical color dream coat, right? That's all you know. But, but there's this other guy named Judah, and he's really interesting. He was kind of the ringleader of all the other brothers in selling Joseph into slavery. So we start to get this sense, oh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> he is the mean one. He is the ringleader of all of this. But the narrative isn't content with just putting Judah in a bad guy camp. He's not just the mean creep who sold poor Joseph. In Genesis 38, there's this whole story with a woman named Tamar. And by the end of it, Judah recognizes he is a person who's broken. He admits his guilt. Redemption begins to happen. He begins to change. By Genesis 43, we see Judah reunited along with the other brothers with his brother Joseph, the very one he sold into slavery, who had now become a significant leader in Egypt. At this moment, Judah does something amazing. He becomes the self-sacrificial brother. He is willing to give himself into slavery in the place of his younger brother, Benjamin. So we see at the very beginning of the story that Judah is the one who sells his brother into slavery. And then redemption begins to happen in his life. It works out and by the end of the story, he is the one who says, no, I give my life into slavery for my younger brother. It's a powerful story. It's a human story of redemption for Judah, this man, this brother. So the story focuses on Joseph, but these five chapters, Judah goes from human trafficker to broken man, a reflection of the image of Christ. Notice that this story is about forgiveness and about redemption. Those who are enemies have been loved, forgiven and healed. And it works out in process. I heard a theologian talking about the story this week, and he said that he wonders if even Joseph had to go through the process. Joseph started as an egotistical, self-aggrandizing brother, right? And then over time, he now becomes the one who forgives and heals and reconciles and sets free. As Christians, we always have to be a people who hope for redemption. That's who we are who long for restoration. We can't be the people in our world who just say, well, that person has always been that way. They'll never change. No, that's not us because we believe in hope and redemption. Or we can't just say that system is corrupt. What are we gonna do about it? Nothing's ever gonna change. We always have a hope of redemption. That's one of the reasons why we love our enemies. 
Self-sacrificial love is at the heart of redemption. It is the catalyst for restoration. If resurrection tells us anything, it's that this world is not fixed. It's dynamic. It's changing. You may have heard um, Dr. Martin Luther King's quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Have you heard this before? We take that all different kinds of ways. Some conservative Christians have looked at this quote and said, well, okay, but that'll happen someday in the sweet by and by. (laughs) Someday, you know, everything's gonna be bad for a long time and then someday in heaven, we're just gonna bend that arc and it's gonna be, you know, right. Some progressives tend to look at this and say, yes, and we are the ones who bend the arc. (laughs) We are the ones who can make this happen. But we can proclaim in the Christian story that it is God who bends the arc of justice the ark of restoration. And he invites us to participate. It's not us primarily. It's not our gifts or our skills or our creativity or because we earned it somehow or we did enough good works. It is God who bends the ark of justice and by his grace, he says, join in. I think about my daughter, Lucy. She started coming early with me on Sunday mornings. She does every once in a while. And uh, she loves to help us, okay, set up everything here. And usually what helping means is when I carry something, she puts a hand on it too, (laughs) right? And it is a help. Something is happening in her. Something is changing in her. Now, we could say, well, she's not really helping that much. If you want to look at it objectively, but sure she is. She is fully participating, I think about that with us and how we participate in God's kingdom. God, by his grace, because he's a loving father, says, join in. He is the one who does the work, but he says, you're part of it too. And that's a beautiful thing. It is God's self-giving love that is the catalyst for enemy love, for forgiveness, for healing. It would be easy to turn Jesus's picture of his kingdom into a list of moral commands. But Jesus is not just giving a list of moral commands. He's calling us into a new way of life. The Greek word for this is telos. And it's a goal, a direction in which we're pointed that will ultimately be fulfilled. And don't be confused. This new way of life that we're imagining does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It's not earning, but it's effort. It does. But this is not ways to behave. It's not that God just gives us, you better live this way and do X, Y, and Z. Jesus is telling us about the future world that has come in him and how we get to participate in it. Really what Jesus is doing is he's describing what God is like and therefore what life will look like for those who bear God's image. God is constantly generous to his people. He even provides good things for everyone to enjoy, those who deserve it and those who don't. And we have to say, unfortunately, that many of us who claim to live to follow Jesus don't live by this new reality, do we? Many say we love Jesus, and yet the God that we serve is a penny-pinching God, and we think that salvation is nearly impossible. If everyone in the world believed in this God, the one who Jesus has embodied and describes. There would be no more violence. There would be no more revenge. There would be no more prejudice or separation by class or by race. People would care more about their neighbor and less about their possessions. That would be this new world. 
And even our passage today before the teaching bit, Jesus tells us, or it tells us that Jesus was generously healing people. It says in the passage that power was going out of him because he was healing so many people. This is a God who is constantly divesting of himself, giving of himself to even those who don't deserve it, loving and healing, not clinging on to power like everyone else in our world who has influence. So what does it mean to live this way? Well, first of all, we have to wrestle with the idea that is this really the best way to live, the way that Jesus describes? All of us have to wrestle with that. Is this indeed the best story, the way that Jesus describes here, the picture that he paints? Many of us have charted a course in our lives to pursue a different telos, a different goal. Our goal is to be happy or successful or fulfilled or something else like that. If you read in the Beatitudes where it says the blessed are, Some translations translate the word blessed as happy, some of the newer translations. But I think this is short-sighted. Blessedness is not happiness as we often define it in the world. Blessedness is what happens when God is at work in and through our lives. We become more who he has created us to be. And this is the announcing of a new reality. I still think when we read scripture, our first tendency is to individualize it. So we read a passage and we go, how do I live these principles I've learned? What do I do with this? How do I obey this? How do I apply this to my life? But this individualizing would have been foreign to Jesus's first hearers. Christian virtue, which is what we call this here, is always cultivated in the context of community. That we are a people of a story We are part of a community. And I want to say this, and this shouldn't be controversial for Christians, but it is sanctification, which is this big church word that basically just means being formed in the image of Christ, this process that happens. Sanctification can't happen apart from the church. It can't happen apart from community. It's not an individualist kind of thing. It is a community, a people, a story together And as we're part of a people and a story, that of course plays itself out in our everyday decisions at work and at home and at school, but we need each other. Christianity is not another individual self-help program. We have too many of those already. We don't need any more of those. Christianity is something different. It's joining a community and we have our lives with a goal in mind. God's future world looks like enemy love looks like radical generosity, looks like self-giving, and we are the people who get to live that way now. So it obviously leads us to ask the question, what patterns do I have in my life that are not oriented towards that new world? What habits do I have in my life that are shaping me towards something else, and how might those things need to change? So what happens when we fail to live up to this new world? Well, of course, we do that all the time, but we have to remember that it is God who creates the new world. It is God who bends the ark of justice. It is God who loves our enemies more than we could possibly ever love them. Our hope is in him, not in our moral efforts, which is good news, amen, (laughs) right? When we seek to jump into this new world, we must look at Jesus himself. Jesus lived these things. He was beaten and spit on yet he didn't retaliate. 
He was tortured and didn't lash out. He loved people who hated him and even said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As disciples, we follow him into this new world. So we talked about this enemy love idea, but the other radical command that I think for some of us is probably harder than even loving our enemies is this idea of picturing the world where we give away our stuff, <laughs> where somebody asks for something like a cloak and we say, have my shirt too, right? This is harder in many ways. Theologian Miroslav Volf says, if we're indwelled by Christ who became poor, that we can become rich, we will be rich no matter how little we have we will be more than enough people. And yet, without being more than enough people, our wanting will always outpace our having and will end up perpetually exhausted and forever dissatisfied. We become a people of wants. We become a people of scarcity, people of fear that we're not gonna have enough. I've noticed a tendency among my fellow millennials, okay? I think that's probably a bunch of us here. Um, our generation has started out as a really idealistic generation, and I think a really hopeful and positive way. Our parents, mostly the baby boomers, were way more successful than any other generation. It's just reality. They killed it, right? <laughs> um, and here we are looking at a different economy and different circumstances, and we said kind of our initial impulse is money's not everything. We wanna live for a better world. We become idealistic and we become hopeful. And I think that impulse is still there, but I've, I've noticed that we're feeling the pinch now, right? And I'm not sure if any of you watch Saturday Night Live. Maybe I'm the only heathen in the room. <laughs> but there was a, a recent sketch um, that was a game show full of exasperated millennials. And the goal was to win things like health insurance, student loans paid off, stable jobs, okay? The only thing they had to do was sit there and not interrupt while a baby boomer told them they were too pampered and just needed to work harder, okay? That's all they had to do in order to win it, right? We see that um, many of us have looked at the generation of our parents and we've seen what considered the good life by our parents, right? And, and we find ourselves struggling oftentimes not just to get ahead, but just to make ends meet. Now, I'm not here to argue the virtues or vices of different generations. That's not the goal today. We can fight that out in the parking lot or whatever. No, nonviolence, right? <laughs> but I just want to point out that's in the milieu. That's in the culture right now. And I think it's created a scarcity mentality. I meet so many people, so many millennials especially, just afraid we're not going to have enough. What's going to happen at the end of the month sometimes, let alone the end of the year, right? We're freaked out, and it's such a challenge to remember as Christians that God cares for our needs, that sometimes we have to literally visualize ourselves in God's hands, right? In what ways is God calling me to be faithful with what I have in front of me? In what ways is God calling me to trust him and to remember that I am dependent on him? As Christians, we are more than enough people because Christ lives in us. God declares we have inherent value. Our value is not based on how much we earn. <laughs> Our value is not based on how well we create. We have inherent value because we are made in the image of God and because we are in Christ. And so we also don't need to fear. God clothes the lilies in the fields. He feeds the sparrows and he will care for us. 
And I need to say this. This is different from Marie Kondo. Okay? <laughs> and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I do want to point that out. There is a, in, in this practice, those of you that don't know, it's a very popular Netflix show, Tidying, tidying Up, that, that really promotes a secular minimalism, okay? Um, Augustine, the early Christian philosopher, used to talk about recognizing our material things as conduits of joy rather than joy in and of themselves, okay? So things don't bring us joy. They can be conduits of God's love and the joy that comes from him, but things don't bring us joy. Do we hear that? Okay. Um, God is the source of joy himself, and he can use things to bring that joy, but those things are not joy in and of themselves, which is a distinguishing of means from source. Stuff may be what joy comes through, but it's not where joy comes from. And I want to clarify, and this is where if you're really into Marie Kondo, great, but purging our stuff can be good and healthy practice. It's wonderful. Minimalism is good as far as it goes, but if we think the goal of life is to declutter our stuff, if we think that's the whole goal of life, we just purge, then we're going to eventually want to purchase more stuff, just how it goes, because we put our hope in those things, even if they're just a few things that spark joy, right? The reason we can let go of our resources as Christians is we know our true source of joy. Miroslav Volf calls this having a rich self. He says, a rich self looks towards the future with trust. It gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming out too short because it believes God's promise that God will take care of it. Finite and endangered, a rich self still gives because its life is hidden with Christ in the infinite, unassailable, and utterly generous God, the Lord of the present, the past, and the future. Now, I get it. It's easy to say, guys, don't freak out about money. Just trust God, right? That's an easy thing to say this morning. Um, but I think there is a process in this of going, Lord, where does my hope come from? Where does my joy come from? And I might still have a lot of freak out times between now and figuring that out. But will you form me by who you are, the God who takes care of my needs? Do we hear that this morning? All right, I want to close um, with this. Our God is the self-giving God. He frees us from the need to retaliate. Our God has an endless supply of resources, so we don't need to hang on to our stuff, is what this says. And we must remember, these aren't just moral commands. They're a new world that we're invited into. How do we live in this new world? Well, today, my hope is just to kind of get us to imagine a new world. That's all my hope is today to get us to imagine that there is a better world. Each week we gather around this new world in Christ. We're called into God's presence. Our sin is revealed. We are forgiven. We're healed by God's word and his body broken and his blood shed. And we are sent into the world as ambassadors of reconciliation. And the first thing we can do is begin to take our thoughts captive. All of us have thoughts every day that are defeating and discouraging. Or is that just me? Nope. I'm probably the only one, so. Defeating and discouraging. We, we have some friends who we spend time with who are not Christians, and yet they've invited us even as pastors into their lives, and we spend a lot of time with them. And, and uh, we hung out this, with them this week, and as they began to talk about church, I just had these feelings of insecurity. Whenever the group began to talk about faith and church, I worried what they were thinking about me. 
I've got to take those captive. We've got to take those kind of thoughts captives in our lives. What about thoughts that are judgmental? Or what about when someone hurts us? Where, where do our thoughts go? What about when our resources are threatened or when anxiety creeps up? My hope for us today is that we would remember that we are part of a new family, a new world, a new story. But also that we begin to form, when we take these thoughts captive, that we begin to form new habits and new practices. I encourage you to do this a lot, but think about what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing that you do before you go to sleep at night? How is that shaping you? How is that habit forming what you do? Those things matter. How might you begin to center yourselves on the things of God in those moments? What are you reading? What are you watching regularly? Remember, this is not a moral litmus test. I just told you I watch Saturday Night Live, right? But it's what are the things you regularly feed yourself with? Begin to form you regularly. I'm not creating, asking you to create nice and neat categories for art, that there's good things and bad things. Some of us grown up in cultures where we were told to do that. I'm not saying to do that. But what are your habits? How are they feeding you? What you do regularly forms your life. God has invited us into a better way, the way of love, even for those who don't deserve it, because we didn't deserve it. The way of radical generosity, even for those who don't deserve it, because we didn't deserve it. But our love, God loves those who are far away. Our God is radically generous. Last thing, Victor Hugo in the book, Les Miserables, says this, you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. The great acts of love are done by those who are habitually performing small acts of kindness. We pardon or forgive to the extent that we love. Love is knowing that even when you are alone, you will never be lonely again. And great happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves, and even loved in spite of ourselves. Amen. Gracious God, we thank you for your great love today. We thank you for inviting us into a new world. All of us have lived by the stories of our world, um, by this current world. Lord, we've chased after other stories that have formed us and shaped us by success or happiness or fulfillment or whatever it is. And we found that all of those are lacking. So Lord, thank you that you give us a better way. I pray that you would form us by this new world, shape our habits, shape our thoughts, shape who we are so that we might live as your ambassadors in a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.